0: Well, friends, I want to encourage you um, to open up your Bibles if you have a Bible in front of you. The text that I'm going to be reading is beneath the video, either on YouTube or on the church website. So you're welcome to uh, scroll down and read it there. But I want to read to you in just a couple of moments from uh, Mark chapter 14, and we're going to read from verse 53 to verse 65. Before we do that, I wanted to uh, mention to a couple of things that are happening this week in the life of the church Um, The first is that tomorrow night, Monday night, we will be um, continuing with the plan to to have Upper Room, our uh, prayer gathering, which has not taken place since um, early March, and therefore we're, we're wanting to restart that. And um, given that the lockdown doesn't come into effect until later in the week, it seems appropriate that we can still meet tomorrow evening. Of course, the format is going to be different to what you remember back in March. It will be slightly different, but we'll be together and we'll be praying. And those are the things that matter. So I want to encourage you, if you had a plan to come to that, please do. Um, Obviously, numbers will be limited. So it's important to be um, early and to ensure you get a seat for that. And then Tuesday night uh, this week, uh, back early in the year when lockdown had begun, we, st- we ran our SALT course, which is our course for those of you who are kind of exploring matters of faith, exploring matters of spirituality and interested in things of God. And um, it runs for six weeks, and it was a, a great success, um, taking place over Zoom, and then having discussion groups. And it was just, it was brilliant to see so many people engaging with um, questions of spirituality. And so Jeremy, my colleague and one of my, the pastors here, is running the same course um, beginning tomorrow night. And there's still time to sign up if that's something that interests you. It'll run for six weeks on Tuesday evenings beginning this Tuesday, Tuesday 3rd of November. And so if that's something that does interest you, can I encourage you to get in touch? You can email info at grace.london, and uh, someone will reply to you very shortly after to make sure that you have the details and can come to that. Now, I want to read to you from the Gospel of Mark, and we're going to read uh, Mark 14 from verse 53. Now, as you recall, Christ has just been arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane, having spent the night in prayer with his disciples, or really in prayer alone, I should say, since the disciples all fell asleep. But in any case, here we find him having been arrested and dragged by this great posse of a mixture of um, soldiers and other people. They've been dr- he's been dragged to the house of Caiaphas, the high priest, where he's going to be examined under interrogation in the middle of the night, in the early hours of the morning. Uh, in the wee small hours, as they say, and Christ is there in Caiaphas's house, and this is what takes place. It says, and they led Jesus to the high priest. And all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes came together, and Peter had followed him at a distance, right into the courtyard of the high priest, and he was sitting with the guards and warming himself at the fire. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death. They were seeking testimony testimony against Jesus to put him to death. You can see the intent and the motive that's going on here. But it says, but they found none. For many bore false witness against him, and their testimony did not agree. And some stood up and bore false witness against him, saying, we heard him say, I'll destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I'll build another, not made with hands. Yet even about this, their testimony did not agree. And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But he remained silent and made no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And the high priest tore his garments and said, What further witnesses do we need? You have heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death. And some began to spit on him, and to cover his face, and to strike him, and saying to him, prophesy, and the guards received him with blows. Now I want want you to think about the conduct of Jesus in this particular uh, episode of what takes place on the night that he is arrested, and just prior to his crucifixion, which will take place uh, as day begins the following day. And... I want to open this theme up and consider the character of Christ by just asking you this question. What quality do you think is necessary in order to um, embody greatness in life? What is it that makes this, distinguishes certain individuals of living truly great lives and um, that we can see in the life of Christ here? And you might say, That For some it's it's talent, and I certainly would acknowledge that often talent seems to be an essential aspect of greatness in life. But certainly talent can be squandered and wasted. It doesn't seem to me to be a guarantee that everyone who has talent necessarily um, aspires to or, or reaches to the levels of greatness. And certainly people with very little talent can do great things. Um, equally, you might say, well, then it's opportunity, it's luck, it's the fact that the doors open for certain people. And, and this is certainly also has a measure of truth to it, that there are sometimes simply just the way that life uh, falls into place for certain individuals, that they're in the right place at the right time. But again, people miss their opportunities, and they turn away from them or they squander them. And so when I consider this, I think that one of the absolute essentials that marks out people who really do live great lives and who make an, a great impact with their lives is that this a, a quality of courage, that courage seems to me to be absolutely necessary for people in order to to do something uh, with your life. And I would say that this is true both generally, but it's also true very specifically for the Christian. And the reason why I put it like that is that, of course, even in the secular world, um, when we're talking about you know seemingly non-spiritual matters people recognize that the essential nature of courage if you want to if you want to arise to doing something uh, significant with your life and so uh, the writer anais nin uh, put it like this she said life shrinks or expands in proportion to one's courage. I think there's truth in that. I don't think it's absolutely true, but it certainly seems to have a a good dollop of truth in it, that life shrinks or expands according to one's courage, that the measure of boldness or courage in your life will become a limiting factor in the things that you do and become. But the reason why I'm drawing your attention to this, because as a pastor speaking predominantly to Christians, I recognize that not all of you would uh, describe yourself as Christians, but the reason why I'm drawing your attention to this is because it seems to me that courage is an absolute essential in the life of the Christian for many reasons. And I, you can think of a few. One is that the second that you become a Christian, uh, you belong to a counterculture. You belong to what we, a group that the New Testament describes as being exiles in the world. That you are in the world, but you are, have a great distinction to it. That you are immediately different. You are immediately set apart. You are immediately called to a life that is uh, different. This is. It seems to me, in order to live faithfully with that identity, it does require a certain amount of courage. Or another way you could think about this, of course, is that the second that you decide to be a follower of Jesus. You enter into a form of warfare and uh, you begin. You, it's as though you're thrust straight onto the battlefield from day one and you learn on the job, you're trained on the job and the, the scriptures describe the spiritual state of the believer as being one in perpetual warfare against the world, against their own flesh and the kind of inner conflict and the desire to sin or the desire to follow Christ and these things being conflict, and against the devil, that there's spiritual battle all around you. And it seems to me that it's not possible to do war without courage. And another reason why I say this, of course, is because of what the calling is that God puts upon his people. What are we here for? What are we here to do? One of the answers that the New Testament gives us on many occasions and repeatedly is that we are here to be witness or to, be, to give testimony to the things that we know are true about the Lord Jesus Christ and about eternal realities. So in Philippians 2, Paul puts it memorably, memorably like this. He says, do all things without grumbling or disputing that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God, without blemish, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life. He describes a condition of the world there as being crooked and twisted. And of course, this is true. It's accurate. It's, it's totally accurate to say that every generation of humankind sees this crookedness and this twistedness all around us. And He says, This is what you're called to do. You're meant to hold out the light and to do that to this generation and for this generation. Again, it's put in a slightly different way in 1 Peter 2. Peter tells us, he says, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. You think these are great titles, titles that confer dignity upon you when you become a Christian. Then he describes the purpose for which you carry this dignity, this calling, He says, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. So what he's saying there and what is consistent throughout the the New Testament is that the reason that we are here, part of our calling, part of our identity, part of our purpose is to, as it were, live in a hostile world, holding out light, proclaiming the excellencies of the God who called us. In other words, we're here to be truth bearers to bring the gospel to the world in which we live and this is something that we're familiar with but something that easily slips down our priority list and not least because of the reality of fear as something which can inhibit our witness, inhibit our um, urgency and our devotion to this particular calling. Now this is something which comes through vividly in these last pages of the Gospel of Mark because as Christ is moving towards that moment at which he is going to give witness to himself on trial, as it were, before the watching world, his disciples are falling away and, and they're kind of disappearing through cowardice and fear. And Jesus said this to them. He said, you will all fall away, he said earlier in this chapter. And then predictably when he's arrested, it says they all left him and fled. And even in this particular story, as Jesus is hauled up before um, the high priest and the Sanhedrin, the, these men, these religious men who are interrogating him, uh, Mark just casts a sideways glance and says, look, there's Peter warming himself by the fire. And he's just drawing attention to Peter. And Peter is, is there kind of warming himself by the fire, trying to look um, uh, trying to look a little bit um, surreptitious and sort of secretive about it. And he's, he's giving these furtive glances, desperate to know what's happening to Jesus, but too scared to actually identify himself with Jesus. And the next story that we'll read is the story of Peter's own denial that he says, I'm not a follower of Jesus. And so as Christ is emerging as this, as this extraordinary, courageous witness to his own identity in order to be a light to the world... The disciples, the men he's trained and called to be witnesses about him to the world, are one by one falling away from him. And Mark wants us to see this. He wants us to see this distinction between Jesus and between the men that he led, his own disciples, of whom we are the um, descendants in a sense. And the reason why he's doing this is to really help us to understand uh, how extraordinary Jesus is. And how extraordinary he is, and particularly in this characteristic that I'm drawing your attention to, which is that of courage. Now, you have to see, of course, that what's happening to him is, a, is a, an absolute injustice. The commentators will tell us that a trial of this kind should not have been taking place at night for a capital crime. It, couldn't, it shouldn't have taken place at night for obvious reasons. You don't, there's no way that anyone can equip themselves well in the middle of the night or that judgment won't be impaired. Um, It tells us, the commentators tell us that they shouldn't have brought judgment before a festival, and we know this is the day before Passover, that they should not have forced a verdict uh, with with so little time, but they do. Caiaphas says, what do you decide? And then you see what's going on in this particular trial. You see how... Uh, they're they're trying to whip up lies about Jesus, and they're twisting his own words about the destruction of the temple, and, you know, it's it's a very uh, evil twisting of the things that he had said. And you see how Caiaphas himself um, is accusing Christ of, bla- of blasphemy and how the beatings immediately rained down on Jesus, physical beatings as though this was some kind of just act, and then the, the taunting, prophesy, prophesy, and all of this to help us to see that the wickedness of humanity, the crookedness, the twistedness, that Paul puts it, of this generation, surrounding this one man, surrounding our Lord and Savior Jesus, who who acquits himself with a a kind of a poise and a dignity and a courage in the face of the darkness around him. And I'm fascinated by the courage of Jesus. I think it's something that we need to pay attention to. And the reason why I say that is because Christ has called us to very much the same destiny and calling as he is facing here on this particular moment. His trial is a kind of microcosm of the whole Christian life. The minute that you are a follower of Jesus, a disciple of Jesus, it's like your whole life, your conduct, your words, everything about you is on trial before a watching world. And the inquisitions will come, the questions, the observations will come, and perhaps with them lies, perhaps with them a measure of mockery or scorn or taunting. All these things are true of the Christian life, and these are what Jesus said it means to be his disciple. He said it repeatedly. That if you know they've hated the master, they'll hate the disciples. They'll hate you, he says to his followers. Your whole life, in a sense, is depicted by what Jesus is going through here, and that the scriptures also tell us that we ought to imitate Christ. So if Christ is set before us as our foreigner, a model of how we're meant to live before a watching world, how we're meant to live on trial, as it were, then it seems to me to be absolutely vital that we learn. What it is that enabled him to maintain such dignity, such poise, and to exercise such courage in the face of a watching world. Because if we don't learn this, then we are redundant, and we're like Jesus says, like the salt that's lost its saltiness. It's no good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled in the street. Without courage, we have no possibility. Of doing the things that Christ did and of, 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 uh, of bearing witness to the things that we believe. So, my question then to wrestle with with you all is, is this question of how did he summon such courage? And I want to show you a few things. And the first is this that I think Christ settled, he settled his spirit with God in prayer. He settled his spirit with God in prayer. Now, You can see this if you ask the question, how did he prepare himself for this particular moment of this trial? He knew what was coming, how did he prepare himself for it? Of course, in a sense, his entire life was preparation for it. Every opportunity that he had to speak truth instead of hiding the truth, every opportunity he had to give witness to the truth about God, all of that is, 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 is accurate. But he still didn't wander into this experience in a presumptuous way. And what we have just read is that he spent the whole night, it seems, or certainly many hours of the night, in a kind of night vigil, watching and praying, preparing his heart so that he would remain steadfast when the real trial came. He's made the decision before God in the Garden of Gethsemane what he wants to do when he is examined, and then having made that decision, he then follows through. Now, I think it's so important to underline this because I think we must never lose sight of the prayer life of Jesus as being such a source of strength and power to Him. The reason why I say that is because I think we have a temptation as Christians to imagine. and we look at Christ and we know that the New Testament tells us to imitate Him as His followers, we look at Him and we say, well, it was different for Him. You know, He he was the Son of God, the way He lived and... um, The way in which he was able to exercise such purity of life and such um, integrity and all the rest of it, you say, Well, listen, I'm not like him. He's different. He's a son of God. And it's harder for me, perhaps, you would say. And so we can then begin to excuse the way in which we live, the fact that we give way to temptation, or the fact that we give way to fear, or the fact that we don't maintain um, a consistency in our witness and in our, in, in living out the truth of the things that we believe, and so we, we make excuses. But the New Testament tells us an intriguing thing about Jesus, it says in Hebrews 5 that although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. What does it mean to say that Christ learned obedience? And the answer is that even though he was the Son of God, he was also fully human, and in his humanity, he had to live a perfect life. And to live a perfect life, he had to pass through every trial that you and I would pass through, except to succeed through those trials. And that's the only way it can be said that he learned obedience. That. He went through every successive barrier in life of testing and trial and temptation, but through them all, he obeyed. So he learned obedience through the things he suffered. He lived his life fully as a man. It wasn't necessarily the case that he drew on his divinity or his divine power, his sonship, to equip him in those moments. He had to succeed as a man. This seems to me to be of incredible importance for us as Christians. Because then you ask the question, well then how is a man, was he able to do this? And the answer that we keep coming up against, every, when I read the Gospels and you look at the life of Jesus, one of the great answers that you are confronted with is that Jesus exercised immense reliance upon God in prayer. He never wandered from the Father. He maintained fellowship with the Father. As a man, this is how He sought to live a godly life. He never broke fellowship with God. So Luke tells us, for example, in Luke chapter 5, he puts it like this, that as he was doing miracles, it says, now even more, the report about him went abroad and great crowds gathered to hear him and to be healed of their infirmities. So Jesus' popularity is growing and growing and his life is under examination as people are interested in him. And then he just tells us this, but he would withdraw to desolate places and pray. How did Jesus survive? This is one of the things we've seen in the Gospel of Mark. He survived because of the consistency and the faithfulness of his prayer life. Now, I find that very challenging. You consider your life in the light of this account, what happened on the night of his betrayal. And I think that more often than not, we resemble the disciples, don't we? Jesus had left them to pray and then he, three times he'd returned to them and been disappointed and he'd said to them, watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. He's trying to instill in them the discipline and the absolute essential nature of prayer, the, the discipline he himself was exercising in that moment and says, watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. Are you a person whose spiritual life is constantly up and down? that you are just blown around by every um, change that takes place and by every temptation that touches your life? Are you that kind of a person who has no stability, that it seems that your emotional health is the thing which determines your spiritual health and that you are constantly more or less a victim of your circumstance rather than someone who seems to triumph over them? Jesus has told us what's the problem here. He says, watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. And then he says, the spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And we read that and we say, that's me. I understand perfectly what he's talking about. I do want to do the right thing. My spirit is willing, but my flesh is weak. Now, Jesus has told his disciples, this is the essential thing. He's he's laying it out before us. As he's about to face the trial, as he's about to withdraw upon reserves of courage and fortitude that he's never had to bring forth until this moment, how is he going to do it? And the answer is because of his prayer, because he's settled things before God in Gethsemane in prayer. And I want to encourage you and challenge you that if this was true of the Lord Jesus Christ, that if he himself, the one who's, who, who was descend, who's descended from heaven and took on flesh, if he had to find courage that night by being on his face before the Father in prayer, then how much more do you and I need to be those whose courage is drawn not from personality or any other kind of resource that we may have, but from vigilance in prayer, by devotion to the Father in prayer, He settled his spirit in prayer. That's the first thing. Now, there's something else here I want to draw your attention to, a second thing, which comes through in this story as I'll show you. But it's this, that Christ's courage was also instilled and fueled and empowered by his knowledge of and his belief in the Scriptures, it seems right that these two things go together, doesn't it? Because it seems to me that these are the two graces which fuel the Christian life. There's prayer, and then there's immersion in the Word of God. And we see this most perfectly in the life of Jesus himself. Now, here's how I want to show you this. I want you to consider this, first of all, from the perspective of Christ's enemies on the occasion of his trial. Think about these men who are, who are interrogating him. The, the high priest and all of the Sanhedrin, these are religious elite. The question I want you to consider for a second here is why were they so hostile to Jesus on this particular night? Why is it that their anger had so built up against him? And there are lots of reasons we can surmise from our reading of the Gospels. One of them is that we know that they were very envious of him. In fact, they were so envious that even Pilate. The Roman governor, not a Jew, not a part of their system, even he could see it as plain as day. And it tells us that when Pilate was um, on the same, later this day as he's about to crucify Jesus, Matthew tells us that Pilate knew that it was out of envy that they delivered him up. So envy certainly is fueling the hostility against Jesus. Another thing is greed. Earlier that week, Christ has cleared the temple uh, violently turned over the tables of the money changers and he's uh, he's he's done this as an act of defiance against the corrupt religious system that existed in the tape in the temple in which the men were interested in enriching themselves he's done all this and at that moment it says they were seeking a way to destroy him so we see envy we see greed but the thing that i'm most interested in is this is is, an, is another factor which is their ignorance their ignorance that so they did not know who Christ was, and they did not understand his life in the light of Scripture, in light of the Hebrew Scriptures that they had read since they were young. Now, this is a factor that Jesus draws attention to again and again. He tells them, for example, in in Mark 12, is this not the reason that you're wrong because you know neither the Scriptures nor the power of God? He's saying to those men who prided themselves on their knowledge of the Bible, he says, you don't know the Scriptures or the power of God. And similarly, um, in John chapter 5, there's an interesting moment where Christ points this out. He says, "Uh, you search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it's they that bear witness about me, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. He says, if you'd believe Moses, one of the authors of, the Hebrew scriptures. He says, you'd believe me, for he wrote of me. So here's their problem. These men did not understand and had not properly read the Bible, and therefore as they approach Christ, they approach him with hostility and misunderstanding, and they feel anger and hatred towards him. And I find this incredibly sobering, and I'll tell you why. Because these men were eminent in Judaism and had been raised to read the scriptures from being little boys And yet they still had not read or understood the things that the Bible said about the coming of Jesus. And there's something almost comical and tragic in the way that they oppose him, even though he embodies the picture of the Savior that's prophesied in those scriptures that they'd read. And here they are, they're advancing their own own interests, over against Christ and it seems to me that this is sobering because it's a great danger even in our day and age that those it's often the case that those most flamboyantly dressed in religious outfits and occupying the highest positions of religious authority within Christian denominations very often seem to be those who are most opposed to what Christ wants to do and this this is a tragedy but you look at Christ in distinction from these men. Here they are, wearing their priestly garments. And then you see Jesus in his simple robe, standing there. And what, does, what makes him different? And it's this, his total clarity, his total conviction that fueled this courage, that enabled him to stand against all these men and maintain this posture, this poise, this dignity. And this is not a courage that comes from you know, sheer force of personality. You know, it wasn't, it's not charisma that we're seeing on display here. It's not, you know, we can think, oh, courageous people have to be like A-type personalities or whatever. And It's not that um, he's, he's, he's bluffing either, you know, fake it till you make it. There's none of that going on. If you ask the question, how is it that Jesus is able to stand there against this phenomenal, intimidating crowd of men, and know exactly why he was there and why he had to say the things he was saying and why he had to be there, if you want to understand that, you have to recognize that his conviction came from his knowledge of and his immersion in Scripture. And the reason why I say that is because, again, you can think that Jesus was drawing on some kind of secret knowledge here, that he he had some kind of download from God, but that's not what the Bible tells us. Luke tells us that even as a boy, you find Jesus dialoguing and engaging with the content of Scripture at 12 years of age. You know the story how Mary Mary and Joseph took took him to Jerusalem for festival. And then they wander off back to their home in Nazareth and on the way somehow... They didn't realize that they'd forgotten Jesus. Presumably they're traveling in a large group and the kids are just running around doing their own thing. And so they'd lost sight of Christ and they don't realize they've left him. So they have to journey back to Jerusalem and then going back, they find him in the precincts of the temple, dialoguing with the religious elite. You know, the generation just before these men who put him to death, probably some of the same men potentially who were there. And it says that all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers, 12 years of age. But he has been so devoted in his former years as a boy to reading and understanding scripture that even at that age, his grasp of the plan of God and of what God wants to do in this world amazes the men that he's dialoguing with. And I find this to be incredibly important to us as Christians. I'll tell you why. Well, let me just show you first where I see it in this passage. I see it, first of all, in his silence that as the accusations are raining down on him, you see how he just maintains perfect dignity and silence. He doesn't defend himself. And it's reminiscent of what it says of him in Isaiah 53, that great prophetic passage where it says he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that sled to the slaughter, like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. So Christ is there. And as the lies are raining down on him, as the injustice is being perpetrated in this trial, Jesus does not feel a need to defend himself because he knows this is his destiny. How does he know it? Because he'd read the book of Isaiah. He'd read it numerous times. He'd understood it. He'd understood what his calling was. And so his knowledge of the scripture gives him conviction in that moment to maintain his poise. And then again, you see this in the way that Um, Caiaphas questions him and and asks him this question, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And Jesus says, I am. And you'll see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Again, where does Jesus get this knowledge from? It wasn't a secret download from, from the Father. It was the fact that he'd read his scriptures. And he's quoting here, he's referencing a chapter in the book of Daniel, which says, and I'll read this to you because I think it's so important that you hear this. Daniel says, "Behold, with the, I, saw, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days, and he was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. So there, as Christ is on trial before these wicked men who are accusing and trying to condemn him. He knows these things because he's read his Bible. He knows that he has to suffer this and he knows that ultimately he is going to be vindicated by the Father so that he will be given dominion or rule or authority over the whole world. He knows these things because he knows the Bible. Let me ask you a question then. Are you a person who possesses that kind of conviction? It, It seems to me that we live in a day and an age when one of the great dangers that we have in the church is an ignorance of the scriptures that we are called to know. There are lots of reasons for this. I think we've moved away from a love for doctrine. We're nervous that doctrine maybe makes you a little bit hardened uh, and, and lacking love for the Lord. And you just want to feel it instead. Of course, this is nonsense, but we're nervous of it. Or we're so distracted by the many things in our lives, and particularly by entertainment, that we don't give the time, the devotion, the energy to Scripture. There's lots of reasons that you can pull into into the frame to explain why it is that there is such an illiteracy when it comes to the knowledge of the Bible. But it seems to me that these are not excuses. Christians are, by definition, people of a book. we are people who need to know what God has said. There's no other way we can know God except through His word and through the things that he has revealed about himself in the scriptures. And you can say, look, it's hard to read the Bible. And I agree with you. There are moments when we all scratch our heads and be puzzled at the things that are written. But this is not a reason to give up and to withdraw. It's a reason to press in further still. Everything in life that is worthwhile requires energy and requires effort, doesn't it? It's not possible to to, uh, acquire diamonds except by digging into hard rock and finding them buried in, in the depths of the earth. And it seems to me that this is the approach that Christians ought to have about Scripture. And if you are someone who finds yourself more like a jellyfish than someone with backbone, in view of the cultural changes that we are seeing today, in view of the hostility towards Christians, in view of the fact that our, our opinions and our beliefs and our, our core identity is increasingly distasteful to a watching world, if you're somebody who finds yourself molding and being shaped by and conforming to the age or simply backing away from the conversation, Then ask yourself, is it because you lack the conviction which can only come from the Word of God? And I've said to you in the past, and I'll say it again, that I think that one of the besetting sins of Christianity in our particular context in Britain is cowardice. And it is a sin, and therefore I'm interested. In what Christ models to us here, that he is fueled by his prayer, but he is also rooted in and built upon his absolute conviction that is, that is founded upon the word of God. He knows what he believes. And as a result, he's unshakable in this moment of greatest trial. And I think this is essential for you to see as a Christian. Now let me show you one final thing before I close. There is also, and this is more of an emotional factor, I think, which gives Jesus courage. It's slightly different from the prayer and the word which has fed him and shaped him. He was deeply secure and certain of his identity. This is another factor I think we have to see here. And it's something which provokes the ire, the anger, the hatred of the men that he's speaking to, particularly Caiaphas, when Caiaphas asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And he said, I am, and you'll see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. He says, the high priest tore his garments and said, What further witnesses do we need? You've heard this blasphemy. Now, I don't know that it, it's necessarily obvious to us why um, Caiaphas reacts in the way that he does. Uh, because there were lots of men at the time in, in, within the first century who had claimed to be the Messiah in the way that Jesus is claiming here, and they were not treated the way that Jesus is, so what is it that makes Caiaphas so angry or shouldn 't he be happy actually that here 's a man who potentially could be the promised messiah and uh, so it 's not obvious exactly why Caiaphas is angry, but the reason why he 's angry is, is is more subtle because it 's in, in the words it 's in the exact turn of phrases that are being used here. Caiaphas refers to God as Son of the Blessed, a Jewish custom to replace the name of God with, uh, to kind of elide it or to evade saying the, the name of God by using some other word. And so he calls God the Blessed. He doesn't want to say Jehovah or Yahweh. He doesn't want to say the name of God because God is too holy and he can't, he's not worthy to say the name of God. So he says Son of the Blessed. And then Jesus replies with these two words where he says, I am, which is an echo of that divine name, Jehovah, Yahweh, which means I am that I am, that Caiaphas has taken such care not to utter. So Jesus not only says the divine name in response to Caiaphas' question, but he's actually claiming to be divine in that particular moment. And of course, by referring to himself as the Son of Man, As I told you, this is the language of the book of Daniel where Daniel describes a divine figure given rule over all the nations. Jesus is making more than a claim to just be the Messiah that Caiaphas imagines but rather to be the very Son of God. And so Caiaphas is provoked because he sees this as the highest form of blasphemy. You remember the Jewish people would say the Shema every day, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And here's this man claiming to be God. Now, we don't understand too well blasphemy, do we? It doesn't make much sense to us. So as we've been watching the news this week, and we've learned in recent days of the various executions or beheadings that have taken place in France because of... uh, Muslim anger against, uh, blasphemy against the Prophet Muhammad, or the so-called Prophet Muhammad, and then you see the uprisings across the Middle East and down into Southeast Asia in those Muslim nations of anger against uh, Macron, and the the French stance of secularism, saying the French ought to have a right of expression. And you see the anger, so that suddenly um, the tables have turned, and, and rather than seeing these people who've been killed in France as the victims are now being seen as part of the problem and that, that, that Islam is being victimized in some way And we look at this as people who are thoroughly shaped by the secular mindset and we, we, we we're puzzled by it. How can how can this be going on? How can people get so angry at blasphemy? You know, blasphemy laws in Britain were, were, were gotten rid of not so many years ago because no one really cares anymore and evidence of this was that just in South London, uh, this is last week, a man climbed onto the, the, the flat roof of a church and yanked the cross down, tried to destroy the cross, and he, he, there, were no, there were no angry repercussions from Christians to him. There was, not, uh, there was not an uprising and there was not rioting and all the rest of it. So we, we, don't, we don't really immediately identify with blasphemy. But of course, make no mistake that we live in a day and an age which is just as easily triggered By offenses against our gods, and uh, you know, I take it as a case in point the situation around um, J.K. Rowling, who was cancelled by her own fan websites, who got rid of her from the Harry Potter fan websites because of her transgressing the the, uh, ideology of the trans ideology, and so setting off tripwires and blaspheming the gods of secularism. And so you see the same reaction, the same fanaticism that you see in Caiaphas here, the kind of tearing of the clothes and the cries of blasphemy and the melodrama and the anger and all the ire and all the rest of it. And I say that to you because, friends, it's so important that you see that we live in an age just as given to a fanatical mindset as Jesus did then. And therefore, courage to maintain your, your belief, requires the same resources that Christ himself possessed or else we'll just be as easily silenced. And So how did, he do, how did he maintain this courage? And I've talked to you about his prayer life and I've talked to you about his knowledge of the scripture but there's this other element to it here that he knows who he is. He knows exactly what God believes about him or says about him. Twice in Mark's gospel, we've seen this affirmation of a divine voice from the clouds, as it were, speaking over Christ. You are my beloved son, in Mark 1 when he's baptized. And in Mark 9, this is my beloved son. Listen to him on the Mount of Transfiguration when God speaks to the disciples. This is my beloved son. The affirmation of God is on his life. He says, you're my son. So as Christ stands before the hostility of these angry men, red-faced, spitting, angry men. You see no defensiveness in him. You see no insecurity in him. You see no fear in him. And you ask the question, why? And the answer is just this, that he knew who he was. He knew that he had the divine seal, the divine stamp of authority, the divine word about him, which is the only word that ultimately matters. And therefore, the opinions of men are as nothing to Jesus. He's unflappable. He's unwavering. He's perfectly calm in the face of what they say. I think this is exactly what the Scriptures are calling us to as Christians. The New Testament describes us with so many names that mark our identity. You're you're called a son of God, a child of God. You're described as being one of his people, a saint. Romans 8 says that we have the Spirit of, of God in us who witnesses with our spirit that we are sons of God and cries out, Abba, Father, so that we look to the Father for our identity. We know that we have the divine name on us, that we carry the family name, as it were. And it seems to me that this is one of the most important things for Christians to, to understand about themselves. Because the world around us can hurt us, can take away our dignity. But Christ, God confers more dignity upon you because you have the name child or the name son. The world can take away your prosperity. It can, can prevent you from advancing in this world because of your beliefs. But God promises to confer upon you greater wealth in the rewards that he gives to those who are faithful. The world can take away your reputation, no doubt about it. But God gives a better reputation when you're associated with Jesus. And so really it leads us to this point where we have to acknowledge that there are basically two types of Christians. There are those Christians who so esteem the opinions and the verdict of their fellow men. So much so that the verdict of God about us is diminished and that that ultimately leads to fear and cowardice and silence. It has to, because the world hates the gospel. And then there are Christians who believe what God says about them and that it makes the the opinions of men totally invalid and it leads to courage. And this is what we're seeing in Christ. Christ. He has equipped himself with prayer. He has immersed himself in the scriptures and he has this absolute conviction. But ultimately, as well, he knows, I am the Son of the Blessed. I am the Son of Man. I am, I know who I am. And as he stands before these men, they cannot strip that away from him. They can take anything from him, including his life, but they cannot take away his identity, which is the only thing that ultimately mattered in that moment. Friends, this is a plea or a summons to courage because our lives are, as I said at the start, we are participating in a trial. Every moment of our lives on earth is a trial, much like the one Jesus was facing here. An examination. The first thing you do is you decide which side of this trial am I on. You can't remain neutral. You're either with Christ in the dock or you're part of the accusing party. There's no other choice. You're one or the other, and this is the choice that's before you. If you're not a Christian, then you are an enemy of Christ. But to be on Christ's side is rather to take His stance and to maintain the truth about Him in the face of lies. First, you decide which side you're on, and then second, then you're called, to, as James puts it in James 1, to remain steadfast under trial. I think Christian courage is one of the most important and underrated virtues that we are called to embody and to fulfill. And I want to pray for it in us right now. I'm going to invite Pete and Nats to come and lead us in a response of worship. But why don't you, wherever you are, pray with me. You might want to open your hands like this to God as a, as a posture of submission to Him. And let's pray together. Father, I want to pray first of all for those who are not yet believers in you, but who see Christ in his courageous dignity and recognize in him someone so unique in the history of the world. I pray that you'll bring faith from hearts to believe on him, perhaps even for the first time. And to switch sides, as it were, to go from being the accuser to sitting with the accused, with Christ, and identifying with Him. But I want to pray, Lord, for your people. Lord, I, I, I confess that all of us feel at times a great cowardice which inhibits us, diminishes us, holds us back from the calling that you put upon us. Well, what a shame it is that we so often are afraid. And I want to ask, Lord, that you will elicit from our hearts, draw out the same kind of courage that we see in Christ. Fill us with your Spirit, I pray. but Help us to learn from the life of this man as he presents himself here to us, the Son of God. I ask it in Jesus' name, I pray. Amen.